Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, friends. It's Friday morning, June 25, about 8.30 in the morning. Welcome to our weekly roundtable on the Bill Press Pod, looking back at the big news of the week with three of Washington's top political reporters. Well, for the first week of summer, this would normally be a slow news week, but not this year. News this week was breaking out on several fronts. Infrastructure week is no longer a joke. Yesterday, President Biden walked out of the White House surrounded by a gaggle of Republican and Democratic senators and proudly declared, we have a deal. But this came just a day after no deal on voting rights after Republican senators filibustered the For the People Act. Meanwhile, Speaker Pelosi announced that if Republicans would not create a September 11-like commission on January 6th, she'd go ahead and name a special select congressional committee to investigate the insurrection. And breaking with many in his party, Joe Biden said his plan to deal with an uptick in urban crime was not to defund the police, but to refund the police. And that's just for starters. So much to talk about, so little time. So let's jump right in with today's panel. Maya King joining us, national political reporter for Politico. Hi, Maya. Hi, Bill. Jason Dick, deputy editor for CQ Roll Call, back again. Hi, Jason. Howdy, everybody. And joining us for the first time, a big welcome to Chris Van Cleve, congressional correspondent for CBS News with Nora O'Donnell. Hi, Chris. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, infrastructure is certainly the big topic of the week. But before we get to infrastructure in Washington, uh, we got maybe an ominous warning about the state of our infrastructure yesterday morning early from Surfside, Florida, just north of Miami, with a partial collapse of a high-rise condo building at this point. Uh, this morning, there are still 99 people unaccount- unaccounted for. Don't know whether they were in that building or lost in the rubble of the building. Uh, a horrible tragedy. Uh, just Maya, this strikes us, right? Because this is something that we might be used to seeing in a third world country, but the United States? Well, I think it's it's pretty ominous for sure um, and bodes not well for the state of American infrastructure. I think Surfside was a unique um, uh, situation in that it was very close to the coast. Uh, the salt water, can, salt water can erode buildings much faster. The building was only 40 years old, so that's also pretty scary, though, to consider. Mm-hmm. And I think even more terrifying or, or concerning to kind of tone this down is the fact that that was the third um, instance of crumbling infrastructure just this week. Here in the District oh. of Columbia, there was a bridge collapse um, that completely shut down traffic for a full 24 hours in a um, in Washington off of the, the 295 area, which kind of, um, you know, feeds into downtown. 
And there's there was also a bridge collapse in New Jersey. So I think that against the backdrop of a lot of the politicking that we're seeing here in Washington around infrastructure, um, infrastructure in some of our most key places mm-hmm. is already starting to crumble. You know, Chris, it's not the perfect analogy, but I kept thinking back to uh, a few years ago where you did a lot of reporting on the 737 MAX. And when two of those planes went down, right, they grounded all of them and did a huge investigation into what caused it and making sure it never happened again. Are we going to see, do you think, a similar sort of reaction to uh, this situation in Miami? Well, obviously, you you can't ground buildings. uh, Right. right. (laughs) But I think you are going to see a a sort of NTSB-esque investigation here Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of potential things that could have gone wrong. So you're going to start with all things on the table. I mean, could it be as simple as shoddy construction that led to supports uh, fatiguing far sooner than they should have been? Or is this an example of perhaps the effects of of climate change or sea level rise uh, coupled with maybe a retaining wall wasn't built right and that's how water got in and undermined the foundation? There are a lot of possibilities about things that went wrong. Uh, And it it does sound like there are some unique uh, aspects to where this building was built as far as settling and and sinking. And so there's a lot of questions and you're going to have to go uh, step by step here. And that's going to be frustrating for people who want answers right now. And, and, mm-hmm. and some of that investigation really can't start until you've accounted for the 99 people missing, because that has to be the priority right now. And Jason, I saw yesterday where uh, some engineers reported that this building, this, this particular building, uh, showed signs of sinking back in the 1990s. It was sinking t- two millimeters a year between 1993 and 1999. Hello, wouldn't that be kind of a warning? Uh, You would think, but at the same time, people have uh, this remarkable ability to sort of whistle past, you know, these sort of warning signs. We've been, you know, we've been getting warnings about climate change, for instance, on a global scale for for decades now and have done remarkably little uh, about it. And I, I, I wish I was optimistic that this will lead to a broader um, systematic kind of evaluation of our infrastructure and where we, you know, where we build things, particularly in areas like Florida and by the beach that are more susceptible. But I, I just, we, we keep, (laughs) we keep kind of pressing forward and, and that's not a good sign without like a broader, uh, reevaluation. Right. So on infrastructure legislation and infrastructure in Washington, uh, again, the president appearing yesterday with uh, members of the bipartisan group uh, that struck a deal. Uh, Here is uh, the president with a note of glee, I think, in his voice, uh, making the big announcement. We have a deal. And uh, I think it's really important. We've all agreed that uh, none of us got all that we wanted. I clearly didn't get all I wanted. They gave more than I think maybe they were inclined to give in the first place. But this reminds me of the days we used to get an awful lot done up in the United States Congress. Bipartisan deals means compromise. So, Jason, let me come back to you because uh, you and I have been around Washington longer than Maya and, uh, and Chris. Uh, but I don't remember ever seeing a president 
of the United States walk out of the White House after a meeting with the members of the meeting and make that announcement to the media himself. I mean, this was a big deal, if you will, BFD maybe, right, for Joe Biden. <laughs> right. And no, I, I think, I mean, you're, you're right, Bill. I mean, like this, uh, I mean, you know, we can talk a little bit about like where this deal like starts to come down in Congress, you know, later, but at, at, there was this moment of kind of unpredictability. I mean, we, we talked a lot about how unpredictable Donald Trump was with the media and so forth, but this is, you know, one of those moments where, you know, if you've ever seen any kind of White House coverage of a, of a, of a White House meetings, you know, congressional leaders and so forth. People will leave the White House. They'll come out to what's called uh, the sticks uh, in in the driveway, you know, by, by the West Wing, and and they'll do a like sort of an impromptu pr- press conference there. And presidents do not do that. <laughs> presidents do mm. not come out of those <laughs> into the to talk to the sticks, uh, you know, so to speak. And so, if if nothing else, I mean, it showed uh, a little bit of. Uh, of a curveball from Biden and also his sort of excitement. So it was, you know, I mean, like this is a small moment, but small moments are big these days. And I think that you're right that this showed a little bit of uh, of glee in the president's voice. I think he really does. He does dig this kind of, uh, you know, thing, you know, like negotiating with people and getting deals. And it showed yesterday. Well, there's still a couple of questions around it. Uh, Chris, what do you hear on the Hill? I mean, Mitch McConnell still hasn't spoken out. And until he does, right, is this is this for real? Is this really going to happen? What's your sense? Well, uh, is it going to happen? Does anything happen on the Hill? It's always sort of a, an open question, right? Uh, look, you've got potentially uh, 11 Republicans who say this is uh, a way forward if uh, Leader Schumer can hold his party together, that's enough votes to pass. So I think you have to treat this as the real deal for now. Uh, certainly, McConnell is going to uh, look at the calculus here and and figure out a strategy to try to get what he wants out of it. Um, but it certainly is more possible today than it was at the beginning of the week. Uh, but the devil will be in the details. And will there be something in in that that could derail things? Absolutely. The other, of course, the other big question is, can uh, Schumer walk this tightrope with the moderates in his party to get the reconciliation budget bill through? Because Speaker Pelosi says she's not going to touch the bipartisan infrastructure bill until the Senate passes the much larger reconciliation bill. And Two, three, four trillion dollars is going to give heartburn to some of the vulnerable senators in the Democratic Party. Right. Yeah, Maya, that seems to be the hitch here, right? That's that that uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, and uh, Leader Schumer, and I, even the president said he's not going to sign one unless he can sign both. Right. So he's put them in tandem. Um, and that that does that does complicate things, to say the least. Right. And with a September deadline, you've given yourself or, or, you know, Pelosi and Biden have given themselves a lot of time and a lot of room for Republicans to start coming out on the offensive against this legislation. The bill is already or the, the deal, I should say, has been made. But I think that what we'll also see over the next couple of months is 
yeah, a lot of talking about that heartburn. And the, the one line that Republicans have always been able to pretty successfully use when they're challenging uh, Democratic legislation is by saying it's too expensive. This is way too expensive. This is going to bankrupt us on this radical agenda. Um, and I think that we could expect to hear some of that on top of the fact that um, as the details of this bill continue to come out and what it's being spent on, there'll be a lot of criticisms that we've already heard from progressives saying that this actually hasn't addressed the issues that we really wanted it to, like climate change and like the care economy. So it is smart, I think, on Biden's part to say that I'm not going to sign this bill until it's paired with a second that has a bit more of that in there. But, um, you know, the biggest one of the biggest hurdles has already been cleared. But I think there are several more uh, that will have to be before things actually get rolling and this bill is signed. Uh, and by the way, I must credit I, Politico, Maya, with what I thought was the best headline on this, I think was in Playbook when they said that on, uh, about the infrastructure deal, making a deal, Joe Biden caught his white whale. Caught his white <laughs> whale. He had, <laughs> this is what he wanted. This is yeah, what he wanted to show. That was his uh, bipartisan, kind of bipartisan glory moment, at least for the time. But uh, not so much bipartisan as just shown earlier in the week in the vote on the voting rights bill, the For the People Act, filibustered by the Republicans. Re Democrats can only come up with 50. Uh, votes, even with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema voting for it. Um, Jason, is this the end of the road for voting rights? Um, I wouldn't say that it's the end of the road on a permanent basis, but I, I don't see where it fits into their agenda uh, anytime soon. Um, as you know, as we've been talking about this infrastructure package, that's that's complicated uh, and will take a lot of effort to to get uh, into shape by the early fall. Uh, this is also the season where everything is is starting to you know move on the appropriations level. They you know Congress you know like does have to pass its most basic uh, duty is to pass spending bills to fund the government, and those are just you know those are starting at the subcommittee level right now. Uh, and, 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 you know, we've got other, you know, sort of big ticket items that, that, you know, Congress likes to get done, whether it's, you know, the setting policy for the Pentagon and so forth. And, you know, the, we're all really talking about a small legislative calendar. There is some talk that Congress will revisit being away for so long, uh, in, as part of the August recess. Uh, but you know, th there aren't a ton of calendar days for Congress. So I, I think that the Democrats will probably utilize this as a political issue and talk about how it's, it's needed, but they don't really have any any room for movement. I mean, they're, unless they start peeling things off and sort of meticulously, you know, putting them through committee and then on the floor, which will take a lot of time, I don't see that the, the big package of overall reforms is going to move in the, in the way that they wanted to, to do it uh, earlier this week. Uh, and Chris, a lot of Democrats are seeing, uh, they think there's a, a silver lining to this cloud of not getting the voting rights bill passed, which is that the more Republicans use the filibuster, the more public pressure will mount to get rid uh, of the filibuster. And yet you've got Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema saying never, 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 and other senators too. Uh, filibuster, any chance do you see of any modification, let alone killing it? I don't. I don't. I don't think you have an interested Joe Manchin or an interested Kirsten Cinema in doing that. And you have some other Democrats in the Senate who are very quietly opposed to 
doing much with a filibuster. So I think it's one of these things that uh, people love to talk about, uh, particularly in Washington circles. But, you know, the, the Senate doesn't do anything fast. So the idea of blowing up something they see as an institution just doesn't seem like that's going to be done in, a, uh, in the near future. Just I don't I don't think you you have uh, 51 votes to do it. And I don't see that changing. Right. Uh, just shifting gears here uh, away from Congress, just for well, not really away from Congress, but uh, from the legislative process. There's a lot of talk, Maya, these days, uh, particularly uh, among Republican circles in Republican circles about critical race theory. Right. It's almost like last summer was. Uh, systemic racism in the country after the murder of George Floyd was all we were talking about. This summer, it's critical race theory that if you're even talking about race, uh, you're racist yourself or you're wrong. Uh, here is a Senator Josh Hawley, for example, from Missouri, who basically says, racism? What racism? I've heard many say the United States is indeed built on oppression and remains a systematically, systemically racist place. That's not the America that I see, and that's not the America that I know. Uh, is that the America you see, Maya? <laughs> well, um, at the risk of, of opining on, on exactly what the senator was meaning here, I mean, I, I would say, frankly, no. And I think you can look at some of the policies that even the Biden White House has instituted to, in its words, to, like try to combat systemic racism or um, or institute equity um, across all of its agencies and the and its actions over the over the past six months that's been the message of this White House and some of the policies that it's aimed to pass um, of course the vice president Kamala Harris a few weeks ago had to also kind of clarify that by also saying uh, this country is not racist but I think in critical race theory, what you see from parents um, and from conservatives across the board is this idea that teaching about systemic racism or teaching that um, certain groups or racial groups have been systemically um, disadvantaged is inherently teaching division among students. And that what it teaches in the eyes of conservatives, white students to hate themselves. And so it's kind of become, though, this catch-all term um, for conservatives in the culture war to not only mean or to describe uh, conflicts in race, but also um, trans students in schools and even school reopening timelines. Um, this has just become sort of a, a nebulous idea that a lot of conservatives have really latched on to, to really stoke tensions um, among their voters. And I think in many ways and looking ahead to 2022, start to chip into some of the support from the voters who maybe held their nose and voted for Biden, um, but now are are thinking about um, who they're going to elect, especially in taking back the House in 2022. I think that Republicans in their calculus, by sort of leaning into a lot of these issues and making Democrats sort of the boogeyman on them, have really or their, their idea is that they'll be able to, to find success with a key amount of voters to be able to, uh, to retake the House and, and be able to reestablish themselves in many ways. And Jason, it's even impacted the military, the military criticized by, uh, by some on the right for um, uh, examining ex ways in which racism may be inherent in some of the practices uh, and of, of the military. Uh, and they've been criticized for doing so. Uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, 
uh, fired back this week in testimony in front of Congress. Here he is. On the issue of critical race theory, I do think it's important, actually, uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And it is important that we train and we understand. uh, And I want to understand white rage, and I'm white, and I want to understand it. So what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America? I've read Mao Zedong. I've read, I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, of being, quote, woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. So, Jason, firing back from the military, right? Right. And, you know, Milley seems to be really in the, in the spotlight a lot these days. I mean, he's, he seems to be very conscious uh, that he uh, screwed up <laughs> when he, you know, walked with Donald Trump, you know, uh, you know, from the White House over to, you know, St. John's Church and, and uh, um, you know, held up a Bible as part of a photo op. Uh, so, I mean, he, he is he is he knows that people uh, watch him and look at his example and so forth. He has a holdover from, you know, the, the, the Trump administration. Uh, but you know, in, in, in this case, I mean, you know, Millie, I, th- I think is showing too, that like, you don't get to that stage of a career, uh, in the military without having to answer some hard questions and without being, you know, as somewhat, you know, of an intellectual ab- about things. And that is not where a lot of the people who are, you know, using critical race theory really as a, as a, a catchphrase almost as, as Maya was saying. I mean, like this has become every, every sort of, um, you know, kind of way of, of pushing back against, uh, people who they, the conservatives perceive as liberals or woke or Democrats or whoever, you know, the, the, the bad guys are at this point. And, you know, Millie is, you know, he's, he's a big burly dude and, Mm -hmm. and 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 an army officer, but he's also a thinker. And, uh, and, and I, I think, you know, it, it might be uncomfortable to be pushing back in a political sense and to be placed in this, but he's absolutely right that, you know, in order to have, you know, people trained, you know, in it, at that level of the military, you have to expose them to different ideas. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's putting the military in a spot where, you know, he, he has to respond. Yeah. So, Chris, uh, Jason mentioned uh, the Lafayette Square and the president walking across the St. John's. You were there. You were reporting uh, on the uh, busting up, if you will, of the protests there in Lafayette Park uh, prior to the, to the president's arrival. Uh, there was a Senate report recently uh, about what happened there. And, and now Nancy Pelosi uh, is coming out saying she wants to appoint, it's going because there was no January 6th commission created by Congress. She's going to appoint a select committee to look into the insurrection. What's the difference between that and the earlier Senate report? Have we already investigated, been there, done that? So the Senate report, which was a, a joint report by the Rules Committee and, and the Homeland Security Committee in the Senate, did not look at what factors led to the insurrection, did not look at President Trump's role in perhaps inciting the insurrection. It looked purely at what went wrong January 6th, looking at it from the intelligence failures, the the security failures that day. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it doesn't get to what was the root or the, the, the causes leading up to. Uh, the the select committee will be looking uh, 
uh, more big picture uh, at uh, what were the things that that led up to uh, inciting the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. So there will be overlap, certainly. And that Senate report, uh, which was pretty thorough, uh, will be part of that investigation and may help frame um, questioning. But I, I, it certainly sounds like there are uh, who, whoever is going to be staffing uh, that committee is going to have the ability to uh, ask some questions that the Senate didn't or uh, couldn't. I, yeah, I was a little confused. Is uh, the, the speaker is announcing creation of this committee? Will it be a bipartisan committee? Will it be Democrats and Republicans on a select committee? It's yes. It sounds like that because uh, because the the speaker did say that. Uh, she is hopeful that uh, Leader McCarthy appoints members who will be uh, take this seriously and not try to uh, distract or derail uh, the process. So, uh, you know, my understanding is that there will be Republicans and Democrats on this committee. It will be led by a Democrat, um, and Leader McCarthy has already called that political. Um, important to note that the uh, the House Republicans were not particularly supportive of mm -hmm. the January 6th commission um, because they felt that it needed to be broader and look into other types of political violence, uh, which the speaker just wouldn't compromise on, uh, arguing that, you know, you're, right. you're looking at apples and oranges at that point. So uh, I think you're going to hear uh, Kevin McCarthy today. Uh, he's have, has a press conference today. I think you'll start hearing his messaging about how that's going to be a political uh, a witch hunt. Don't no, I wouldn't be surprised if you if you if you hear that throwback <laughs> to the Trump years, right? right. And you know one thing one thing I think is important to note too, but the, you know the commission that Republicans rejected, you know, would have you know used people who were not in government service. This would be have been you know run along the lines of the nine eleven commission. You would have had people who were certainly affiliated with political parties, but were not current office holders. And you know the uh, you know select committees are sort of fraught with peril because they're current office holders, and this could turn into I mean like the Republicans did this with the Benghazi special you know select committees, um, so it it's 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 probably not going to be as uh, fruitful an investigation as we might have seen from a bunch of professionals. Uh, and my on this point, um, I noticed yesterday kind of three unrelated but related things that happened. One is a judge in Washington said, any of these members of Congress who say these were just tourists uh, at the Capitol on January 6th, uh, were, you, he wondered what planet they lived on. Um, there was a group out in Michigan uh, led by Republicans, three Republicans, one Democratic state legislator, who issued a report just denouncing people who questioned the validity of the uh, outcome of the election, particularly in Michigan. They particularly went after the pillow guy for keep saying that this is a, that the election was stolen. And last night at the Reagan Library, Mike Pence said it was un-American, it would have been un-American for Congress to vote to overthrow the election on January 6th. So I guess when I add those together, my question is, is the steam kind of running out of the, you know, 2020 was stolen election story? 
I don't think the steam is running out of that story. Ah. I think that you have two different schools of Republicans now who just have different interpretations of mm-hmm. the events from November 3rd to January 6th. Um, because where you still have the folks like Mike Pence, probably the most high profile Republican in the country, saying that the election was not stolen, essentially, and that, um, you know, and condemning the events of January 6th, you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions still of Trump supporters and Republicans across the country who would be calling for his head over that comment to say that that's not true and that the only people that they would accept in the party to be quote unquote true Republicans are the folks who stand behind Trump no matter what, are willing to question the fraud in the 2020 election or even just outright say that the election was stolen. Um, and I think you you do get even within that group, a bit of splintering around um, interpretations of January 6th. But what I've observed here in talking with both of those uh, those parties, I guess, within the Republican Party, is that you just have these, these two very, very different groups who think very differently um, about about this, about what happened and about the 2020 election. And so it's created this, this real splintering of the party in many ways. Okay, we've covered a lot of territory so far. A few other things we want to touch on, but let's take a quick break here on the uh, roundtable today on the Bill Press Pod with uh, Chris Van Cleve from CBS News, Mike King Politico, Jason Dick from CQ Roll Call. And today's roundtable brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the good men and women of the UFCW. Under the leadership of President Mark Perrone, they are over one million strong. The people that may be union members that we see most in our daily lives are the people that serve us at our great department stores, at our big grocery chains, and also in our chemical meatpacking and cannabis plants across the country. The real backbone of America's service workers, the UFCW. We salute them for their good work, thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod, and invite you to find out more about the UFCW at their website, ufcw.org. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back. Today's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, joining us again, uh, uh, Chris Van Cleve from CBS News, Mike King, Politico, Jason Dick from CQ Roll Call. Uh, so, Jason, Rudy Giuliani got a little uh, surprise, maybe yesterday, uh, suspended from uh, being able to practice law in New York State. Rudy of himself, of course, wasn't going to remain silent. Fires back. The investigation of Donald Trump and the investigation of me is an investigation in search of a crime. But I'm going to tell you unequivocally, I did not commit any crimes or anything close to crime. I defended my client. I defended an unpopular client. I've been threatened with death for it. I've <laughs> had a good deal of my income taken away. I've lost friends over it. Oh, pity, pity, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) At least he didn't call it a witch hunt. (laughs) I mean, um, perhaps Rudy uh, will uh, at some point begin to look at his life choices. Uh, And, you know, he he may, I mean, he may be uh, correct in saying that he has not committed a crime, uh, but he, uh, you know, the the New York uh, bar system uh, determined that he had violated the terms of being a lawyer, uh, which is that you cannot make false statements in court. Uh, You know, and and again, you know, some of this came up over and over again in court when he would be, you know, uh, you know, challenged by a judge and then back down from some of these things or, or, or Trump's lawyers would. And, and then go, you know, out on the courthouse steps or go uh, to, I don't know, a, a landscape company's parking lot outside of Philly uh, and, and make, you know, like sort of false claims about the election. And so uh, this, uh, you know, if, if this was not uh, Rudy Giuliani, I, I, I'm guessing that this uh, lawyer X would have had the law license pulled long before this time. Uh, but uh, th- this seems to be, again, part of the consequence of of perpetuating, you know, some of these claims. Uh, yeah, and um, it's a long, a long way from uh, um, America's being saluted as America's <laughs> mayor. <laughs> for- he, he was Batman, right? I mean, he cleaned up the city in the nineties, yeah. uh, as, as the as the tall tales go. Uh, it's a remarkable fall from grace. Uh, on another topic, uh, Chris Van Cleve, the vice president today, is going to El Paso, Texas. And, and as part of that trip, she is going down to the southern border. Um, too little, too late, Chris? You know, I'm not a political strategist, and I will, I'll own the fact that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit new to covering politics. But this seems like it was an unnecessary uh, delay in getting to the border. I mean, she allowed for weeks and weeks of Republicans to be able to ask, why hasn't she gone to the border if she's— you know, sort of the 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 border securities are now. Uh, so I, I would say that it was a an unforced error to wait this long, when it would have been very easy to get her down to the border, uh, you know, right away. Mm-hmm. So I, I I don't understand the strategy, but you know, it it probably will will quiet some of the. Uh, 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 of, of the calls uh, of the questions from Republicans, but she kind of didn't have a choice because the former president is going to the border uh, <laughs> next week. And right. he certainly would have devoted a lot of time to calling her out for not getting there uh, if she hadn't gone at all. 
Yeah, I think an unforced, un, what is it, unenforced error, right, is the- un, Unforced error. Uh, unforced error, thank you, is the is the right phrase for it because, uh, you know, it is basically a photo op, but <laughs> at the same time, people attach significance to photo ops. Jason made a similar point earlier in the roundtable and uh, um, perhaps waited a little too long uh, to get there. So Maya, uh, say the biggest story of the entire week to you, which is- uh, which took place in a courtroom in Los Angeles yesterday. Uh, uh, a 39-year-old woman said, I want my life back and I want to get away from my daddy and this conservatorship. Here, Britney Spears said, I want to tell my story and I want the public to hear my testimony. Here's part of it. After I've lied and told the whole world I'm okay and I'm happy, it's a lie. I've been in denial. I've been in shock. I am traumatized. Ma'am, my dad and anyone involved in this conservatorship, they should be in jail. I deserve to have the same rights as anybody does by having a child, a family. I have a um, ID inside of myself right now so I don't get pregnant. I wanted to take the ID out so I could start trying to have another baby, but this so-called team won't let me go to the doctor to take it out because they, they don't want me to have children. It's so sad, I find, such an incredible celebrity, such a great talent, right, uh, to be in this position. Maya, what's your take? It's absolutely devastating. And I don't think it's uh, unreasonable to call this one of the biggest stories of the week. It's like the most universally agreed upon item of the entire week, I think. Uh, people on both sides of the aisle are screaming, free yeah. Britney. This is terrible. Because I think really what is so um, disheartening about all of this is you look at the timeline of this conservatorship and you see all of the things that she was still able to do and accomplish. I believe she uh, recorded two mm -hmm. major albums, um, was a host of a, of a, of a music um, I am so bad with TV. I apologize, but I know that she hosted like one of the biggest music TV shows also while under this conservatorship. And that's to say nothing of the fact that she has, you know, no body autonomy. And I think that's what, that's what struck a chord with a number of people is that it's very clear that there are things that she wants to do. You played the clip about how she mentioned that she has an IUD and she's not even able to take that out. Um, that's a level of control and, and, a, and a lack of, um, of, of control that she has over her own body that is sort of the stuff of nightmares for a lot of women. So I have certainly been following this story. I hope to, I hope that, I hope that she is freed. And I think that her, her decades of, of fans who have been around since long before the internet have been, I know they've been mobilizing for a very long time on her behalf. So this is certainly not the last we'll see of her. Well, and it's hard to believe that the judge would rule otherwise, but we'll have to uh, see what happens in that case. Very wrenching and powerful testimony, I thought, yesterday uh, as well. Well, we thank you, members of the panel, for taking a look, breeze through the uh, news of the week. As we always say, there's even with all of us, as busy as we are covering so many stories, there's always one that we report on or not that sort of pops out, catches our attention, uh, stops us in our tracks. Um, we call it the favorite story of the week. Jason, start us off. What what grabbed you this week? So uh, 
you know, usually I uh, I come prepared with some long, you know, five to fifteen thousand word uh, New Yorker profile or something like that about um, yeah. I don't know, like raising Siberian huskies in Madagascar or something. <laughs> uh, th- that's not going to be the case this week because it was this it was a fairly short uh, article in Washingtonian magazine, something I don't often read, um, but it was about the. Uh, you know, this, the pattern of establishing think tanks in Washington and how think tanks proliferate from the losers in a presidential election. And they, they went back to 1988 uh, as sort of the, uh, you know, the look at how the, um, you know, the Democrats started the Progressive Policy Institute and then all the way through, you know, the Center for American Progress, uh, hmm. you know, American Action Forum after the McCain loss and so forth. And now we've got uh, what was inevitable, perhaps, uh, the ultimate sign of people, some people turning the page, which is the Trump people starting their own think tanks here <laughs> in Washington, <laughs> becoming part of the deep state, if you will, or at least the deep nonprofit. Uh, and I, I don't know, it was like I said, it wasn't it wasn't the longest article. Uh, yeah. it, it certainly wasn't the most in-depth, but it really was this reminder of like this weird world that we inhabit of, uh, of, of think tanks or non-think tanks, if you will, in the case of some of them. This power in Washington of the think tanks, right? It really is like the fifth estate, maybe, or, or maybe maybe it's really the first estate. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, Maya, how about you? What caught your attention? Sure. So I'm here with a shameless plug for a Politico story about oh. one of the stories that kind of got overlooked this week in many ways, which is Uh-oh. so surprising. And that's the New York mayor's race. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, it's it's it was just such a crazy and just really wacky uh, race with a number of different characters. My, my colleague Ruby Kramer took a walk um, with the outgoing mayor Bill De Blasio last week mm-hmm. and wrote about what she saw, and it was I thought a really good look into sort of the mind of Bill De Blasio. And the headline is Bill De Blasio has some regrets, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is an accurate description um, of how he's thinking. He's the mayor that everyone, even people who aren't from New York, absolutely love to hate. And there's this really great line um, that that Ruby captures, this moment where they're walking through the park in the field, and there's a they're sort of walking... Um, close to Prospect Park and a father and son are playing baseball and the father stops and points to Bill de Blasio and says, no one wants you. You're the worst. I can't wait for you to get out. Bill de Blasio turns and says, have a nice day. And he keeps walking. So it's just, a, I just thought it was a fun story. And, um, you know, I'm not a New Yorker, but I've absolutely loved following this race and all of the different characters and weird things that have taken place. And, and it may be weeks before with ranked choice voting before we know yes. uh, who the real winner is, although it looks like Eric Adams, but we don't know. Uh, I read that story. That was, a, that was a great story. I was thinking about this kid watching his father, right, <laughs> screaming at the mayor. <laughs> you got to start him young. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Chris, uh, of all, all everything you saw this week, what caught your attention? Well, I'll, I'll give you two, because what I am Uh-oh. what I started reading this morning uh, and haven't finished, but is fascinating to me. There's a Rolling Stone article called The Sky Thief, which if you think back a couple of years ago, that baggage handler that stole the Alaska Airlines plane. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> right. It is uh, it, it is a deep dive on what happened there and who this person was 
Uh, I remember I was out uh, with a couple of friends. It was a Friday night. It was almost at midnight. And uh, I got a text from somebody at the FAA that said, someone just stole an airplane. <laughs> uh, so, and I, and I called, I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, somebody stole a plane, an airliner. And uh, so I, I, th this story was firmly rooted in my mind because it made for a very long couple of days in, in my life. But uh, so far, I'm riveted. I'm about halfway through it. Uh, the other one I will say, and this is speaking of unforced errors, it's just uh, a, one that's going to play out on the Hill today. Uh, officer Mike Fanone, the D.C. police officer who was pulled into the crowd and beaten, who's been mm. become sort of a, a voice for the officers on January 6th. Uh, has been trying to get a meeting with Kevin McCarthy for oh, yeah. weeks and weeks and weeks. And uh, McCarthy says, well, we gave him a phone number to call the call our scheduler. Fanon says, you never gave me a number to call the scheduler. Um, finally, the meeting is supposed to happen today. Uh, this was after I offered to give McCarthy Fanon's number earlier this week. It just seemed like one of those, you could have met with him weeks ago, so you didn't get asked every week why you're not meeting with this guy. Uh, so I'm also kind of fascinated to see how that meeting goes. Those are my two stories of the week. Okay, you got it. And I have to tell you, my favorite story of the week, and I know it is also one of yours, is the Supreme Court ruling eight to one in favor of this teenager, Brandy Levy, Levi, Levy, I guess from um, Pennsylvania, who um, was bounced from the cheering, didn't make the cheering, uh, lead, uh, cheering squad at her high school. Uh, she was not happy about that, and she sent out a uh, a very uh, direct message, let's say, to 250 of her friends. Uh, somehow the school officials found out about it, even though she was not on school property. She was at a coffee shop, uh, and you know that the school then suspended her. She, Her parents actually sued the school district, and it's worked its way all the way up to the Supreme Court, where I think in a classic decision for free speech and for the underdog versus the establishment of uh, the Supreme Court ruled that she had a right to say um, what she felt about the school to her friends, uh, and the school district could not punish her for that. Um, in, it was also sort of a victory for the use of the F-bomb, right? <laughs> Because unlike, none of you can say this on your broadcast, but I can say it on the podcast, uh, her message in response to not making the cheerleading squad was, fuck school, fuck softball, fuck cheer, fuck everything. Uh, and my favorite part of the story is thinking about the justices of the Supreme Court sitting in closed session, talking about whether fuck everything was okay to say. Stephen Breyer wrote the uh, favorite, uh, wrote the majority opinion. Uh, and by the way, we saw that yesterday the Congress passed a bill, or the Senate did, or maybe one of the committee, uh, Chris, to allow um, cameras in the Supreme Court sessions from now on. So imagine had the cameras been there for this discussion. Uh, I think that would have been very colorful to say <laughs> in their black robes, uh, to say the least. All right, that wraps it up for this week and today's podcast and today's roundtable. Thanks so much to uh, Maya King from Politico, Jason Dick from CQ Roll Call, Chris Van Cleve from CBS News with uh, Nora O'Donnell. Thank you all for being here, guys. Great job. 
And we thank all the rest of you for listening in and joining us on today's podcast. Uh, next Tuesday, we'll be back with the next Bill Press podcast, talking to George Packer, Atlantic writer. He's stirred up a lot of controversy with his new book called The Last Best Hope, America in Crisis. George Packer joins us to tell us how bad things really are and whether there is any real hope for renewal here in this country. Uh, that's next Tuesday on the next edition of Bill Press Pod. In the meantime, stay safe, stay strong, stay, stay sane, have a great weekend. We'll see you next week on the Bill Press Pod.